Welcome to The Gathering Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message. We're going to be speaking a message about preparation and expectation. Preparation and expectation. And when we talk about these two things, we're talking about preparing ourselves and building an expectation for what God wants to do right now on the earth, through his church, through his children. And when we talk about things like this, it's really important that we look to this, this reality that is called revival. And I'm reading a book right now by a man named Arthur Wallace, and it says, uh, it's called In the Day of Thy Power. And this is a young man when he was a young man, actually, and, and he was experiencing revival. He was hearing stories of revival. And he looks around and he says, well, if revival is a real thing, we really need to be walking in pursuit of it. How could we be aware of something as incredible as a move of God, like revival, that we are not walking in anticipation and expectation for? If revival is, is something that has happened throughout history, why are we not going after it with all that we are? And so I want to talk about revival this morning. I want to first kind of define what revival is and, and really look at the the definition of revival from a few different people because revival sometimes we look at it as big meetings we characterize a move of god as being revival we we think about times where the church sets aside certain days and and says we're going to have revival meetings we look at crusades or maybe we look back to brownsville or toronto or azusa street or what took place at asbury university And we look at those and and we realize that revival is a real thing, but do we know what it is? And so Arthur Wallace gives us a definition of revival that I want us to listen to here this morning. But first he says, this is what revival is not. Revival is more than big meetings. It's more than religious excitement. It's more than the quickening of the saints or their being filled with the Holy Spirit. It is more than a great ingathering of souls. One may have any one of these without revival, and yet revival includes them all. He says, revival is God revealing himself to man in awful holiness and irresistible power. It is such a manifest working of God that human personalities are overshadowed and human programs are abandoned. It is man retiring into the background because God has taken the field. It is the Lord making bare his holy arm and working in extraordinary power on saint and sinner. It is a move of God that overshadows the work of man. It's a move of God that cannot be contrived, that cannot be orchestrated. It's a place where God shows up, and in spite of the best efforts of man at times, he comes up and shows up in powerful ways. Banning Leapshire says it like this, and I was going to joke that this is a shorter definition, but it's really not. We can put it on the screen here. It says, Revival is a move of the Spirit of God, marked by His presence and power, awakening His church with a radical passion for Jesus, a desire for holiness, an unwavering commitment to His cause on the earth, where Jesus and His kingdom are revealed to a lost and dying world that results in a great harvest of salvations and culture being transformed. There's a lot going on there in that very long run-on sentence. But it encapsulates the heart of what revival is. It's God moving. It's coming to a lost and a dying world that results in great salvations, radical passion for Jesus, a desire for holiness, and an unwavering commitment to his cause. If I could just paraphrase here this morning, 
a few of these definitions. Revival is when God shows up in a way that is sovereign and supernatural, which supersedes business as usual on the earth. Revival is the manifestation of the prayer that Jesus taught to his disciples when he said, Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Revival is where God shows up in a way that is powerful, in a way that is beyond our comprehension. And it's the thing that when we realize that it's real, we need to live in an expectation and pursuit of this power of God working in our lives. But for me, when I've looked around and and just kind of growing up, I've always heard of revival. We've talked about revival. But sometimes revival has become more of a description. It's become more of an idea. It's become something that, yes, we desire God to move, but we wonder, is this a real thing and will we see it happen in our day? But I want to just go through a couple of examples here today to to show that revival is real. That revival is in the heart of our Father. And that we as the church that we as children of God have something to say about it and something to do in it. You see, revival is a time where God moves freely in a powerful expression of his sovereign will. Sovereign because he's the only one that can make it happen. Do you know we can't make revival happen? We can't schedule revival. We can't plan for 2024 at this date and time. This is when revival is going to come. It's God's sovereign timing, and it's his will. It only comes when he says that it's time for it to come. But don't make any mistake about it. We do have a part to play in God's revival coming to the earth. I'm going to explain this more because it's important that we understand what God wants to do through his body, through the church, through the expression of who he is on the earth. You see, true revival is the power that impacts not only those within the walls of the church, but it impacts the community in which it takes place. It's not meant to stay in one place, but it is meant to spread and to grow. It is meant to impact and to touch lives of men and women who are not even expecting it. It's where ordinary men and women are impacted by the beauty of God in his fullness and his power. And they come under the conviction to repent of sin and turn to Jesus. It's where his presence and his power are magnified in all who experience it. And I believe that it is something that we are meant to see again in our day. I really like how someone said it recently. I was watching a few videos on revival, just looking at some of the history of what God has done. And this guy, Daniel Norris, says that revival comes suddenly, but it does not come unexpectedly. Revival may come in an instant, And it is not in our own doing. But when we look throughout history, we see that revival has come as the result of a genuine heart cry for God to move. We do not make it happen, but there is a response of God when he sees the heart cry of man who is yearning and desiring and calling out for his power to come and to move on the earth. Today, I want to look at the impact that revival has actually had here, not just in our nation, but in New York State. And it's so important that we look at this, especially on the back of the powerful message that we received last week from Amanda Grace, where she spoke about our state, 
Some of the decisions that we've made throughout history that have obviously been in direct opposition to what God wanted to do, the results of those decisions, the chains that came, the the bondage that came as a part of it, but also the fact that God has never given up on New York State, that God has not given up on our nation, that although the enemy has had a plan for evil, God has a plan and a purpose for good, and that he wants to use us to bring about his change in the world. So I want to look back at two specific examples this morning, one in September of 1830 and another one that took place in New York City. So in September of 1830, there was a man by the name of Charles Finney. You may have heard of him. Charles Finney and his team were given an invitation to come to Rochester, New York, to take over a church, the third Presbyterian church in that city. And They've been looking for a pastor, and they invited Charles Finney, and Charles Finney and his team looked at that area and said, "Mm, I don't know if that's going to work. You see, God wasn't moving there. There was infighting amongst the churches. This specific congregation had been without a pastor for a very long time, and they thought, no, I don't think this is where God is going to move. And so they decided to look for other, other opportunities. Well, as Charles Finney went to bed that night, God spoke to him. And he said, Charles, I want you to realize that the exact reasons why you are saying that something can't be done in that city are the exact reasons why you have to go there. And so Charles Finney tells his team the next day, much to their surprise, we're going to Rochester and we are going to take over this church. Well, shortly thereafter, uh, what happened was something pretty incredible. Charles Finney, went, his approach was two things, prevailing prayer and powerful preaching prevailing prayer, prayer that wasn't going to stop, that wasn't limited to this short amount of time, and powerful preaching where he taught the Word of God, where he spoke the Word of God and brought people to the understanding that there was a need to turn their hearts back to Jesus. Do you know that in a short time, there were over a hundred thousand individuals that were saved because of what God started to do in that church? that there were 100,000 people that came to know Jesus. Do you know that if we had 100,000 people saved in this period of time, that the churches of the Hudson Valley wouldn't be able to house all of them? 100,000 people, and within 100 miles, people flocked to this area to hear the word of God be preached and to experience God's power at work. They said that as an expression of this, that many of the bars had to close early and, and the police department didn't have anything to do because as God was moving, that things in the community started to shift. That this was the revival power of God. Not just that there was excitement going on in the church. Not just that there was a church service that wasn't ending, but that the community was being impacted by the power of God. You see, that's revival. Charles Finney was not a perfect man. But there was something birthed in this time out of an incredible hunger from God to see him bring salvation to a lost and a dying world. And heaven responded in great power. There's another example. In 1857, a man by the name of Jeremiah Lanfear, who was in New York City. And he went before God and felt that God was calling him to do something in New York City. And so he asked what that would look like. And he felt that God put on his heart that he should have a prayer meeting that would take place every day from 12 to 1. That this prayer meeting would be for businessmen to come and to show up and to pray and to seek God. Well, he was really excited about it. He advertised for it. He spread the word. In September of uh, 1857, September 23rd to be exact, this prayer meeting started 
and no one showed up. Isn't it exciting when you feel like God calls you to do something and you step out in faith and when you open your eyes with great expectation, nothing happened. But by the end of that day, six people did show up. Okay, so that was a start. Not necessarily what we would call revival, but it was a start. Well, two weeks later, the stock market crashed. And before they knew it, there were 10,000 people trying to get into the doors of this small room that he had rented in New York City to come and to pray and to find God. And this movement did not stop there. But the cool thing is for me is that they had these meetings that they were trying to bring people in. And before long, they had to put up a sign that says, you can only be in here for five minutes at a time. Because there are so many people that are trying to get into the doors of this room to pray that we have to limit the amount of time that you're able to be in here. Wouldn't it be amazing if we had to put up time limits for people to not pray too long in church so we could fit everybody? The the amazing thing is that this revival did not stop in New York City, though, but it spread to other states and to other cities like Cleveland and St. Louis and Chicago, that these churches grew so much that they had to have 20 baptisms a week just to be able to handle all of the people who were coming to repent and to find Jesus. It's an incredible thing. There is a, a student that was studying this revival, and he said that based off his estimation, perhaps as many as a million people were converted in 1858 and 1859, the two years that would follow, based off of the work that God was doing in New York City. Do we see what God has already done in our own backyard? And do you believe that he desires to do it again and to be able to reach our state and our nation with the gospel? You see, revival has not just happened before. It's not that we have to ask the question, does God want to move? We don't even have to ask the question, do we want God to move? Of course we want God to move. We want to see salvations. We want to see the lost and the dying turn to Jesus. We want to see healings and transformations. We want to see all of these things. We're hungry for it. But the question that has to be asked when we look at this is what are we willing to do about it? We want it. What are we willing to do in order to see the power of God come in such a mighty way that lives are being transformed just by being in the proximity of His presence? It's a question that I have to ask myself. And it's a question that we have to ask. It's a simple one, but it's an important one. I told you a few weeks ago that I really enjoy history. And I've been watching this show about this family and this group that We're moving from the south to go out west during the late 1800s. And there was this move, there was this migration that was taking place out west, as much as a quarter of a million people in that, in those couple of years. But when we look at the story of their lives, we see that what they were doing is that they were leaving everything that they knew. They couldn't bring everything with them. They couldn't bring everyone with them. But there was something about this promise of what was on the other side of this journey that made it worth it to go through the obstacles and the challenges, to leave friends and family behind, to go through the dangers that would be in front of them, to go through this process where there was no guarantee that they were going to survive it. But yet on the other side, there was something that they felt was worth the price that needed to be paid. During worship this morning, I was just listening both services. The worship team doesn't know what I'm preaching on, but there was this theme that was coming through. It was this theme of there being a cost. 
something that was required of us, but that what was on the other side is beautiful. It's so worth it. It is the person of Jesus that is giving us an invitation to come deeper, to step into more, to be able to come with an expectation that he wants to do more in this time, in your life, in my life, and in this church. There is something that God is wanting to do. And we talk about the, the jar of alabaster oil and the fragrance. There was something of great worth that she brought before Jesus because she knew that the price that she was paying, that there was a worthiness in Jesus, that there was something in that exchange that no matter what it cost her, no matter what was on the other side, she was going to pay that price. Are we willing to do what it takes to say yes? Are we willing to say, Jesus, we want to see your spirit moving in our church and we are not going to stop. We're not going to stop pursuing you. We're not going to stop seeking you because we know that your desire is to do exactly that. The question is, is are we willing to pay the price and do we see it as a worthwhile investment? Have we reached the place where we feel that unless God moves, we cannot and we will not see our nation transformed. Have we reached a place and a moment in history where we realize that we cannot, in our own ability, in our own understanding, give this world what it needs? Have we come to a place of realizing that we can, we can speak to the issues that are going on around us, we can see the need for change, but I cannot in my own power bring transformation and healing and restoration. Without God's Spirit at work, it is limited to my own self-effort, to my own ability. Which means I must ask the question as well, do I believe that God can move in this way again? Do I believe that for God nothing is impossible? Are we willing, because of that, to be inconvenienced to see Him move? To prepare ourselves for what He wants to do? Once again, there can be little question that God wants to move. I love the story in Second Chronicles chapter 16. It's a story about a prophet coming to the king, King Asa, and he's bringing a reprimand, but there is this incredible statement made in the midst of this. So let's read from verse 7 to 9. At that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria... And did not rely on the Lord your God. The army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hands. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give support and to show himself strong to those whose heart is blameless toward him. To those are fully committed to him. You have done foolishly in this. From now on, you will have many wars. Do you see what God is saying through this prophet right here? That the eyes of the Lord are searching the earth, are going back and forth, looking to find those that would seek him and would trust him to do what only he can do. The eyes of the Lord are looking for those who are fully committed to him so that he can show himself strong. The question cannot be, does God want to move? The question cannot be, is it his will to move? The question is, when he looks on the earth, will he find those who are willing to be moved by him? 
Will we partner with heaven to see him move? Will we partner with heaven to allow him to do what only he can do? So what does it mean to partner with heaven? And if we are to step into expectation, then what can we possibly do to prepare for it? When we look to the book of Acts, we see in chapter 2 that the disciples are obediently waiting the promise of God. Jesus said, I want you to go to Jerusalem and I want you to wait there. And so they are there for 40 days. In Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They are there waiting, and it says, suddenly the Spirit of God comes. He comes upon them. They begin to speak in unknown tongues, and everyone around them is like very excited about it, and they can't wait to see what's going on. No. The people around them are like, okay, these guys have gotten into something. Um, They're drunk, probably. Maybe this is a cult. We don't really know what's going on. But Peter stands up very boldly in chapter 14 with the 11, and he lifts up his voice and he addresses them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered throughout the, through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and the magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. As a result of this prophecy, the boldness of Peter and the Holy Spirit filling them, there were 3,000 that were saved that day. The first great revival. 3,000 in one day, that's a good day's work. They see 3,000 come to Jesus. And, and, and this, was, this was an incredible time, of course. But what I want to ask is, what were the circumstances that were surrounding this? What made this time the prime time for revival? Was there spiritual dryness? Well, we know that Jesus had just been walking the earth. The Son of God performing miracles, raising the dead. Could this have been a time of spiritual dryness? Well, I would say, judging by the fact that they crucified Jesus, probably, that there was a stirring that was occurring, that there was the Spirit moving, that God was doing something in His time, but there was something about that time where they were not receiving what God was doing. And so when the disciples are here in this room, waiting obediently for what God has called them to do, for what Jesus instructed them to do, they were waiting for God to move. And and I don't know exactly what was happening in that room. We know they were praying together, but I wonder if they were spending time together talking about the things that Jesus had done. I wonder if they were going through the testimonies of the work that they had seen happen through their own hands as Jesus had appointed them and given them authority. 
I wonder if they were in that time sowing the seeds and and allowing the soil of their lives to be prepared for what God was going to do. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, we know that he finds a resting place where they are then able to be used by him in a powerful way. They were preparing the soil of their hearts. Do you know that everything that the disciples had done up to that point, that it was in preparation for this moment? That Jesus dying on the cross and walking with him, that that wasn't the finish line, but that was the starting point for all that he was doing through them? That he had prepared them and equipped them for this moment in time because this was the season in which the church was to be birthed. What was the purpose of the church? It was to preach the gospel. It was to see lives transformed. It was to see disciples being made, being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It was to create and to start a movement through Jesus that would impact not just that time, not just Judea and Samaria, but the entire earth and for the entire rest of humanity as we are preparing and expecting Jesus to return. But first, they had to be prepared. And so when Peter quotes out of Joel chapter 2, he says that in Joel, that there's going to be the day of the Lord. There's going to be a day of judgment. But he says in verses 12 through 14, Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and he is merciful. Slow to anger and of great kindness. And he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Okay, he tells them there's going to be a day of judgment. He tells them to repent. And then he gives them the beautiful promise. Verses 23 through 24. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains because he is faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. He says, when you repent and you return to the Lord your God, he is gracious and merciful. And what is going to come out of that is going to be the rain, is going to be the resource, is going to be his spirit flowing out. This is not the only time in the Bible that we see this. We look back to the book of Ezekiel and we see in chapter 34 verses 26 and 27, I will make them and the places all around them a blessing and I will cause showers to come down in their season. There shall be showers of blessing. Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. The earth shall yield her increase. They shall be safe in their land and they shall know that I am the Lord their God when I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. Again in Isaiah chapter 30, verses 22 and 23. You will also defile the covering of your images of silver and the ornament of your molded images of gold. You will throw them away as unclean and you will say, get away. Then he will give you the rain for your seed with which you will sow the ground and the bread of increase of the earth. It will be fat and plentiful in the day of your cattle and they will feed in large pastures. What is God saying in these scriptures? That when you return to him, when you remove the things, you defile the idols, when you get rid of the things that shouldn't be there, what is he going to do? He's going to bring the rain. 
He's going to bring his spirit. This is the Old Testament. We're talking to an agricultural community that depended on the growing of their harvest and their fields. What did they need to make these things grow? They needed the rain. What happened at times where they were unfaithful? There were seasons of drought. But God said, when you return to me, I'm bringing the rain. And so Peter continues and he quotes verses 28 through 32, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. God is saying once again, if you return to me, I'm going to give you what you need. But first, you need to turn away and you need to return to me. Peter says it twice. Acts chapter 2 verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 3 verses 19 through 20. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. So when we read these verses, we have to ask the question, what is this act of repentance? What does it mean to repent and why is it necessary? See, repentance is the work that needs to be done in order to receive what he is pouring out. There can be an outpouring of the Spirit. There can be rain that will fall and yet hearts that won't receive. Jesus cries over Jerusalem. He looks to Jerusalem and asks why. The Messiah is there with them. Why have they not turned back to him? He, he longs to bring them close to him. And Jesus himself is crying out because there were hearts that were hardened to him. But this act of repentance is the act of preparation to position ourselves for what God wants to do. We can have all the rain for our seed, but if the soil is not ready, what's going to happen? The seed's going to be washed away. I don't know if anyone's ever tried to plant grass seed before. Grass seed's pretty easy. It's pretty resilient. But if you take grass seed and you put it in a parking lot, nothing's going to happen. If you put grass seed on hard soil that has been compacted and dried out without doing any preparation, what's going to happen? It's going to sit there. It's either, like Jesus said, going to be eaten by the birds. I've seen it happen. Try this in my backyard. It's going to get dried out. It's going to get roasted. Or when the rain comes, it's just going to wash it away. What has to happen first? The soil has to be prepared. The hard places have to be broken up. It has to be, it has to be churned and broken up so that when the seed comes and the rain comes, the seed is able to put roots down and to bear fruit. We're in a season right now where there is a lot of hardness that has taken place, not just in the world, but also in the church. We've been planting the seed, asking for the rain, but we haven't done the work to prepare our hearts to receive what God wants to do in the time that he brings the rain. We cannot be the ones who are satisfied to come to church on a regular basis, to check the boxes, to make sure that we tune in at the right times and yet we are not allowing the Word of God to do its work inside of us to allow the Holy Spirit to come and to prepare us for what He wants to do. 
can I tell you very clearly, it's not enough. It is not enough. If we do not allow God to do what He wants to do in us, we are only going so far as we feel that it is comfortable, but we will not bear fruit of the Spirit. And I say this a lot, and I mean this because I see this happening. We, we desire to see God move, and, and we do the partial work, and we pray and we ask for God to do the things that we know that only He can do, but we don't prepare ourselves. And when it doesn't happen, either the way that we think that it should, or it doesn't happen because we expected it to happen a certain way, or just not at all, we blame God. But yet we did not do the work required to first repent and to prepare the soil of our heart to receive what He wants to do. Hosea chapter 10, verse 12, says, Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, and break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Don't hear these words as just scripture that was spoken a long time ago. Hear these words for you today. It is time to break up the hard places. What does it mean to break up the fallow ground? It means to take the plow to the places that have lied dormant and have not been producing any fruit in your life. There are those in this time that are seeking God and are curious and, and coming to the door and just wondering, is this for me? And I want to encourage us to bring people into church so that they would be able to hear the word. But there is a point in time in which we are the ones responsible to say, yes, I will. I will prepare my heart. I will do what is required of me to receive what God has for me. But sometimes we, we don't use the right tools. Because we're only willing to go so deep. And so we start to dig a little bit, but it's uncomfortable. We scratch the surface a little bit. And things start to be revealed. But they're painful. We don't like them. There's a reason why we've left them buried. And so we quit covering them back over. Because it doesn't feel good and we don't want someone else to see it. Can I tell you that this is not going to do it anymore? I was going to bring out a few more props today. Had a big shovel. Don't need to. We actually have a full-on garden tiller, like right behind that door right there. With the big, the big wheels, like to, to really turn. We have to be willing to not just go this deep in our lives. I, I, could, just, I could just spend the rest of the time right here. We cannot afford to allow the Holy Spirit this much access and expect for Him to do something. It, it, it's one of those moments where Joshua says, choose this day whom you're going to serve. Are you willing to be uncomfortable to allow Him to prepare you I'm not just saying to do incredible things that you've never seen. I believe that is true. But out of a place of obedience. Because he wants to bring freedom. He wants to loose the bondage. He wants to remove the things that have held you in captivity. But you have to give him access in order for him to do it. 
You have to be willing. We have to be willing. The church has to be willing. We've got to break up the hardened places. It's to the measure that we are willing to prepare the soil of our hearts. That is the measure that we will, that we will actually begin to see the word take root and bear fruit in our lives. We don't want fruit that's going to bear fruit quickly and then die out because its roots aren't deep enough. We want to allow the Holy Spirit to come in and to break up the hardened places. We have to allow God to do what only He can do, even if it's uncomfortable. There is something about when we give God the actual permission to come into that space and into the situations with us. There is something about those moments where we are actually willing to change and to be changed. There is something about those moments of vulnerability where God comes in and He shakes the foundations of our life. Every time we see God show up in the Bible, what is the response? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and this is an unclean people. There is this reaction when they see him. Job said, I abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. David said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. There's something about seeing God with clarity when we give him this access that changes things in our lives. It's this act of repentance that is becoming sensitive again to the Holy Spirit. There have been places in my life where I have allowed the Holy Spirit to come in and there's a sensitivity there. And when a thought comes in, I know that it can't stay. When an idea or, or a desire to do something comes in, that I'm like, no, I'm not going there. I'm not doing that thing again. But there have also been seasons in my life where I've become hardened to those things. And I haven't separated myself from those things, but I've separated myself unto myself. And I have allowed the thoughts and the thinking and the way of life to take part in my life and to take root in my life. And that's what bore fruit. We cannot allow ourselves to be separated unto ourselves, trying to figure it out, using our own intellect and knowledge and understanding to be the thing that dictates and determines what my life is going to become. We have to allow Jesus to do what he can do. We have to allow the grace of God to come in and to help us walk through these places. For some reason, sometimes it feels like a message of repentance stands in opposition to a message of grace. But can I tell you that is not the case? The truth is, is that we can only fully repent through, uh, through His grace and because of His grace. The, the truth is that the only way that we are coming with a willing heart to lay these things before Jesus is because we know what He has already done for us. Can I tell you what is waiting on the other side? of this repentance is not a beatdown. It's not a spanking. It's not a father who is looking to condemn you and judge you and to put you in your place. But it is the arms of a loving father who are saying, come to me. Come to me because I have more for you. I have peace and I have rest. I have joy. I have the, the ability to bring you into a new season that you've never felt before. And maybe you have in part but there's so much more. We need to remove any strongholds that we have allowed the enemy to exist in our life and be kept in the dark. We need to remove the places for the enemy to hide, but to expose those places. Arthur Wallace says, contrition involves repentance towards God for all sin 
is primarily against him. There must be confession, without which there can be no forgiveness or cleansing. And to confess means to identify ourselves with our sin before him, to point to it, and to acknowledge, Lord, that is mine. Do you know that there is a part of us standing before God where there must be a repentance, where we are willing to say, Lord, that is mine. It's not because of somebody else. I'm not blaming them anymore. Yes, there may have been things that people have done to me and and it wasn't right and it wasn't fair, but God, this place of sin, this place of hardness, this place that I have kept off to the side, Lord, it is mine and I am taking responsibility for it. Because unless I am willing to do that, I cannot actually bring it before you. The thing about a sacrifice is it must first be yours in order for it to be given. There are places in our lives for people in this room that we must be willing to say, that is mine. For the first time in my life, maybe, I take responsibility for that. I choose to receive my part in that action, and because of that, I'm willing to give it to God to allow him to do what only he can do to bring the grace that I need. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 